All right, good evening, everybody. Good to see you tonight. Could I have you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1. As we have been studying chapter 1, starting around verse 3, he talks about how that the Lord, through His abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance which he says is incorruptible, undefiled, does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are being kept by the power of faith. And in this you greatly rejoice, he said, even though right now for a while you're going through grievous trials. And uh, obviously trials are a part of the Christian life. Um, those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, we read in the scriptures. But um, these trials serve a purpose. Uh, not only do they uh, grow us, but uh, they purify us. And he talks about our faith being purified like gold subjected to the fire, the gold ore. The dross is burned away and the gold becomes pure and ready to be used for something beautiful that the goldsmith, the jeweler, can fashion it into. And Peter says that that's much like our faith. God subjects it to various trials, and uh, which cause it to be strengthened, tempered, purified, uh, that it may be found to praise, honor, and uh, glory at the re revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, verse 8 he talks about Jesus at the end of verse 7 and says, verse 8, Whom having not seen you love, we looked at that last time, though now you do not see him yet believing. Let me just stop there. Obviously, we don't see the Lord face to face. We see him through scripture. We see him through the lives of others. We see him through situations that he is working in. And uh, it's obvious the Lord is moving and doing things. But we don't see him face to face. Now you remember how that, the night that Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to his disciples in the upper room. And, um, but Thomas wasn't there. And after the Lord had gone, Thomas eventually came back and the disciples were all excited and said, we've seen the Lord, he was here. And Thomas, what did he say? I'm not going to believe unless I can basically see him with my own eyes and put my finger in his nail prints in his hand and my hand and the spear wound in his side, and so on. Well, a week later, they're all in the upper room, and Jesus appears to all of them and says to Thomas, Come here, son. Go ahead and put your fingers in my nail prints and your hand in my uh, spear wound. And Thomas said, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said, You know, you believe because you have seen. Blessed are those who believe who have not seen. And that's what faith is. I don't know if you've experienced this, but have you ever witnessed to somebody and uh, maybe you're talking about the end times a little bit and the Lord's return and have they ever said to you, well, when I see Jesus return, then I'll believe. Look, the Bible says those who bow the knee to Christ now without having seen him and receive him as Lord and Savior, they will spend eternity with him in his kingdom. Someday, though, when he returns, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. But if you wait till that day, basically the day of judgment, I'm thinking primarily, before you bow the knee to Christ, well, it'll be too late. 
It's the difference between heaven and hell. Uh, believing now without seeing or waiting till you stand before him on the judgment, day of judgment, and confess him as Lord then, again, it's the difference between heaven and hell. Today is the day of salvation. Don't wait. Now, he talks in verse 8. He said, you know, even though you, uh, you, know, you haven't seen him, you love him, and uh, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. The word translated joy inexpressible only appears one time in the New Testament, right here in 1 Peter 1, verse 8. One scholar says that the word describes a joy that is so profound as to be beyond the power of words to express. Wow. Another puts it this way. Their joy was no ordinary earth-born joy. And I agree with that. The joy that these believers were exhibiting in the face of the sufferings, the persecutions, adversities they were going through, listen, was a supernatural joy that no human being could manufacture. It was a joy that could only come from God. You see, joy is an attribute of God, as in the joy of the Lord, right? It's an attribute of God. And uh, the only way for God's joy to become a part of me, we'll say, part of me, is to have the nature of God become a part of me. Now, in Peter's second epistle, chapter 1, verse 4, he says that when we got saved, we were born again, of course. And at that moment, the moment of our new birth, God came to live in our hearts through his Holy Spirit. And when he did, he imparted to us a new nature, the nature of God, or as Peter put it, we became partakers of the divine nature. Now, part of what that means is that as God came inside of us to take up residence, okay, he began to live his life through us. The light that was in him began to shine through us. We became the light of the world, as Jesus would say in the Gospels. After he said, I am the light of the world, eventually he said, now you are the light of the world. And this is all about God living within us and shining through us. Part of what that means, though, is God has planted his nature within us. That's what it means to be born of the Spirit. You receive a new nature, the nature of God. And one of the things that begins to happen is stuff begins to grow. Okay? Stuff begins to grow inside. We call it the fruit of the Spirit. And eventually it begins to grow outside of our lives. That's the beautiful thing about it. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 3, is just God's nature growing inwardly in our hearts and then outwardly through our lives in the form of joy, peace, love, and so on. But uh, this fruit grows from our new nature and is not dependent on our outward circumstances. It is separate, listen, and supernatural. You know, happiness is based on outward circumstances. In fact, it comes from the word happenstance, all right? Uh, you know, whatever happens, but if it's good, I'll be happy. If it's not good, my circumstances are not good, I'm not going to be happy. But see, the kind of, we're talking about joy which is not based on external circumstances. It is an attribute of God that comes from Him who lives inside of us. Therefore, we could have joy in the midst of some of the most terrible circumstances. And I, I believe that's uh, how the Christians Peter is addressing here uh, could have such an expressible joy in the midst of such difficult and painful circumstances. It was a joy that was not coming from any outward thing. It was coming from within them through the relationship with Christ, 
through the Holy Spirit living inside of them. Look, this joy was what characterized Paul's life, especially, and I'm thinking of uh, the letter he wrote to the Philippians. The letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians, the epistle of the Philippians, was one of four epistles that Paul wrote while under house arrest in Rome. He was waiting there to stand trial, uh, to stand before Caesar, to defend himself against the false accusations that had been leveled against him by the Jewish leadership in Israel. And they were some fairly serious accusations uh, that Paul was an insurrectionist. He was an inciter of riots around the empire. That's something Rome did not take lightly. They pretty much didn't care what God you worship. As long as you acknowledge Caesar is Lord, you can worship any God you want. But what they did not tolerate was anything that came against the Roman peace, the Pax Romana. Uh, that was something that they prided themselves in very big into law and order. Uh, and if anyone rose up to bring any kind of uh, disorder or rebellion, boy, they dealt with that swiftly and harshly. And so Paul was facing some very serious accusations, accusations that could have resulted in very easily his execution. And yet the theme of the epistle to the Philippians is joy in the Lord. Now we studied this a few months back. In fact, we could call Philippians the epistle of joy because Paul uses the word joy and rejoice over a dozen times in those four chapters. And the question is, how was it that Paul could have so much joy while in such a terrible place uh, with his very life on the line? Well, Paul's secret was that he learned to fill his mind with Jesus. Now, you know what? I know we're guilty sometimes of throwing around these pious platitudes. And they don't communicate often to people's hearts. Well, great, that sounds looks good on a bumper sticker or on a piece of driftwood that I put up on my desk or something. But, you know, I'm, I'm tired of Christian bookstore little pious platitudes. Well, don't be tired of this one, okay? This is how Paul maintained his joy in the, in the midst of a very difficult, even life-threatening experience. He had learned over the course of his Christian life to fill his mind with Jesus. We saw this clearly, and I know we're not in Philippians, so I won't spend a lot of time but I mean, we're talking about joy. And Philippians is the epistle of joy, all right? But we see this clearly in the first chapter, how Paul learned to fill his mind with Jesus, where Paul uses Christ or Jesus Christ 17 times. In fact, that figures out to more than once every two verses. Chapter 1 is loaded with references to Jesus. In fact, we know that Paul talks about joy quite a bit in this epistle to the Philippians. But he talks about Jesus much more, who is the reason he had so much joy in the midst of his difficult circumstances. What do we actually mean, though, when we say that Paul learned to fill his mind with Jesus? Well, this is why we study the Bible. This is why we study. Jesus said, the volume of the book, it is written of me. What can we learn about Christ from the Scripture? Well, obviously, way too big a subject to get into tonight. But let me just encapsulate it a little bit. What do I need to know about Jesus that will help me as I fill my mind with those thoughts? First of all, that he died for me, that he saved me, that he's filled me with his Holy Spirit, that he's promised never to leave me nor forsake me, that he is there every step I take to give grace in time of need, 
Uh, he's promised me an inheritance. Peter talks about it right here. I'm, I'm an heir of God, a co-heir with Jesus Christ. I mean, Paul was in a, a win-win situation. He said, look, if they kill me, I get to go be with the Lord. If they don't kill me, I get to stay and minister to you guys a little longer. It's a win-win. But that was his mindset, right? That was his mindset. Because he has filled his mind with Christ and the joy just exploded out of Paul. One author said, and I quote, How much Christians need to learn this. There is so much bickering in Christian circles, so much complaining, so much unhappiness. This was never meant to be. Christians were meant to be filled with love and joy and peace. In short, with all the virtues that are the result of the life of Christ within the Christian. To be filled with Christ is the secret of real Christian living. It is the secret of true happiness, and I'll add true joy. Look, guys, that in a nutshell was the secret to Paul's ability to have joy while in prison. With uh, his possible execution hanging over his head, he had learned to fill his mind. Again, learned to fill his mind with Jesus. In fact, Paul uses the word mind ten times, thinking five times, the word remember sixteen times in the epistle to the Philippians. It's because the secret to the Christian, to a Christian joy, the secret to Christian joy is found in your mind. No, not metaphysically, all right? It's rooted in your heart because Christ lives in your heart. But it's accessed through the mind. What do I mean? Well, it's all about how you think, how you look at things. I mean, let's be honest. As Christians, our perspective of life has dramatically changed from when we were not Christians. Our goals are different. We don't see life the same way. Our passions, uh, everything has changed. Now, that's all because Jesus lives in our heart. That's true. But we are, we are an integrated being. We are body, soul, mind, spirit. Okay, And the idea is what affects one affects the others. So when Jesus lives in the heart, obviously, and the Bible says, you know, don't be conformed any longer to this world's way of thinking, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That comes by studying the Word of God. As we fill our minds with the Word, which is all about Jesus, well, a beautiful thing begins to take place, a transformation. The peace of God begins to fill our hearts. Why? Because I see things so differently now. God's in control. Jesus is in, living inside of me. What am I worried about? He's going to take care of me. Uh, and even if I get persecuted to the point where they kill me, I'm going to be with him. To depart and be with Christ is far better, Paul said. The mind is so important. The way we think, and might I add that your outlook will be determined by your uplook, as one author said. What does the Bible say about it? Colossians 3.2, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Now, that's very difficult today. First of all, a lot of Christians don't really <laughs> use their minds anymore when it comes to their Christianity. I mean, Jesus said, you know, we need to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Okay? The soul would be the seat of the emotions. And pretty much a lot of Christians have gone that way exclusively. They want to love God with all their feelings, basically. They want to go to church and emote, feel, right? They're Holy Spirit junkies in the sense that they're on a holy, they want a Holy Spirit high all the time. They want God to just, you know, whip them up emotionally. As such, they are very biblically illiterate because they seek out churches that cater to the emotion and not to the mind in the sense that they're not teaching churches. Look, as one 
evangelist said one time, he said, when you go to one of these very high-energy, emotion-driven churches, you know, it's not, you know, and everybody's jumping up and down and dancing and swinging from the chandeliers. Look, it's not how high you jump. It's how straight you walk when you land. And the only way you can walk with God is to know Him better. And that comes through the study of the Word. So, again, cultivate an eternal perspective. I cannot underscore that enough when it comes to having joy in the midst of difficult circumstances. Have the mind of Christ. Cultivate an eternal perspective of life. Guys, this is not PMA, positive mental attitude stuff. I'm talking about BMA, biblical mental attitude. Or, again, what Paul calls having the mind of Christ. Okay, back in 1 Peter. Again, verse 8, Whom, having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, guys, verse 9 can be translated, for you are receiving, the Greek is present tense, okay, you are receiving the consummation of your faith, that is, the final salvation of your souls. Here the Greek word translated souls, psuche, we get our word psyche or psychology from that term, shouldn't be understood in the narrow sense as just referring to the soul of man, again, the seat of the emotions or the consciousness in this case, but uh, sometimes it's used to speak of the whole person, and that's how he's using it here. Uh, he's using the word, you know, that receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your whole person is the idea, all right? Now, when Peter says in verse, verse 9 that we are receiving our salvation incrementally, is what he's basically saying, as a process all the way to completion, that stumbles a lot of people. And I understand why. It's a little confusing, okay? Peter's saying, look, hang in there, because you know, your salvation is working its way, working until finally it's going to be completed. Well, what does that mean? Sounds like a Roman Catholic thing. If I keep going to church, lighting candles, keeping the sacraments, I'll earn the little installments of grace, and fully you're in salvation something. No, no, no. That's not what he's saying. Not what he's saying at all. I know it sounds confusing, um, because we think of salvation as something we already have in Christ, full and complete. But understand once again, our salvation takes place three-dimensionally. In three dimensions, if I can put it that way. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. Now that's salvation, full and complete. We have passed from death to life. We shall never come into judgment and that kind of thing. So first of all, past tense, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. Uh, that's salvation, Ephesians 2, verse 8. Secondly, we are being saved from the power of sin. That's sanctification, 1 Corinthians 1, 18. And finally, we will be saved from the presence of sin, our future glorification, Revelation 22, verse 15. But remember we talked about this a couple weeks ago. The Bible says when we gave our hearts to Christ, our soul, our consciousness, the, the person who lives inside this body was redeemed. Okay? Of course, our spirit was dead, but now has come alive. Because now we're born of the spirit. So we are, in a sense, saved inwardly. Our soul and spirit are saved. They're redeemed. But our body isn't. Our body is still a product of the fall. Now, when the rapture occurs, we are going to receive a new body, a glorified body. 
And that's what Peter is really alluding to here. When he talks about someday, and he ties it to the rapture. We'll talk about that more in a moment. When the rapture happens and we are caught up to meet the Lord in the air, Paul tells us at that very instant we are going to be transformed, receive our glorified body, and then our salvation will be complete. Already soul and spirit redeemed, body not yet. But at that point we will be fully redeemed. Our salvation will be complete, Romans 8, 23. Not only that, Paul said, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, listen, the redemption of our body. That's what's in view here. All right, 1 Peter 1.10. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired. Now he's talking about the salvation of the total man. So again, he's got in view here when the Lord Jesus comes for his church at the rapture, right? Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Let me stop. One of the things that these Old Testament prophets desired to understand, and I'm just trying to figure out what Peter is, uh, what he has in mind here. I think this is part of it. One of the things that the Old Testament prophets who prophesied of this, they desired to understand it more completely. And that was the New Covenant, as prophesied through the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, God said to Jeremiah that, he was going to someday make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Not like the old covenant he made with their forefathers, you know, there at Sinai, the Mosaic covenant. Which covenant they broke, of course they did. Before Moses even got off the mountain, they had broken the first commandment, you shall know the gods before me. So that was built on man's faithfulness. Any covenant built on man's faithfulness is doomed to fail. Thank God. He took the new covenant right out of our hands. It was not dependent on us keeping the law or the commandments or whatever, light, lighting candles and keeping sacraments and so on. It's all, Jesus did it all. And this is what they wanted to understand. They, they didn't fully grasp all of it, but they knew God had promised a new covenant. That comes out of Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 33, if you want to write that down. And God says, I'm not going to hold their, their sins against them. He said, um, I will put my law in their minds and write it in their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people and so on. But the whole context is about this new covenant and uh, how it's built on, not on law, which means it has to be built on grace. I mean, law, you earn salvation. Grace is given to you as a gift. If the new covenant is not built on law, it's got to be built on grace. And they desired to see, well, what all was involved with this? They were fascinated. Other commentators, and maybe they're both right. Maybe Peter had both in mind. But other commentators see in Peter's statement, of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Underline you. All right, you don't have to. I'm just in your mind. Okay. <laughs> you're going to underline and go, wow, well, you know, two months, you're going to, why did I underline? Just can't figure it out. <laughs> So just in your mind, underline it, okay? You know, this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. And, uh, and uh, commentators see the you as being directed at the Gentiles, talking about the grace uh, God would extend to the Gentiles, uh, that they would be saved. And uh, see, we've talked about this. A lot of the rabbis and Pharisees and all, 
were so anti-Gentile that they believed that Gentiles could not be redeemed. They were just created to fuel the fires of hell, basically. They were uh, irredeemable. But that was never, God never said that. God, God never said that. Uh, all the way in the very, when God called Abraham, at that time Abram, who would become the father of the Jewish people, uh, the, the father of a new nation, the nation of Israel eventually, even when God called Abram, he said to him in Genesis 12, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. Listen, and in you, and what he's talking about, in you in the sense of in your descendant Messiah who will come eventually, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So right there, God says he was going to use the Jewish people, particularly Abraham and, of course, Messiah, to bless all the families of the earth. The Bible says in the book of Revelation, when we are finally gathered around the throne, right? There are people from every tribe, tongue, family, and nation represented. God has no respecter of persons. And now that the Spirit has come, He's gone into all the world, witnessing the people to come to Christ. But the, the Jews had this mentality, many of them, not all, but many of them believed that God only loved the Jews. He didn't love the Gentiles. Uh, in fact, he, they were defiled. He just made them to fuel the fires of hell. And yet the prophets were given prophecies that said to the contrary, that God did love Gentiles, that God was, was going to make a way for them to be saved and that they would be a part of the kingdom someday. Now, we know in Matthew chapter 4, in fact, why don't you turn there? Matthew 4, and we'll pick it up in verse 12. It says, Now when Jesus heard that John, John the Baptist, his cousin, had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, so this is something that Matthew is quoting from the Old Testament, Isaiah, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. That's the predominant group in the Galilee were Gentiles. And the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, a light has dawned. Oh, the light of the world, Jesus Christ. But the point is that Jesus spent quite a bit of his ministry up in the Galilee. And yes, he ministered to Jews up there, but there were a lot, mostly predominantly Gentiles. And he went up there because, again, it was in fulfillment of a prophecy God had given through Isaiah and it was others who said that someday the Gentiles, God would seek them out. A people who are not my people shall be my people, God said, right? And he was talking about, even Jesus said, uh, I have many sheep of this fold, but I have other sheep from another fold. And these will come and be one flock together. Talking about the Gentiles and the Jews becoming one group, the church. Okay, so back to 1 Peter 1. So verse 10, of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Don't let the term the Spirit of Christ throw you. That's just Peter's way of referring to the Holy Spirit who uh, spoke 
to the Old Testament prophets about the Christ. The word Christ in the Hebrew is Messiah, Mashiach. It's just Messiah, anointed one, is what the two words mean. Uh, Mashiach in Hebrew and Christos in Greek, uh, both mean the same thing, the anointed one, the Messiah. Um, but the Spirit of Christ, as Peter puts it, spoke to the Old Testament prophets because, again, the Spirit uh, laid on many of these prophets prophecies concerning the coming Messiah. And uh, in that regard, it was the Spirit bearing witness of Christ, the Spirit who bore witness of the Christ. In the New Testament, we see the, uh, the connection between Jesus and the Spirit a lot more clearly. Uh, in the New Testament context, the Spirit of Christ can be interpreted as, listen, the Spirit who belongs to Christ or who was sent by Christ to testify or prophesy of things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to John 14. Remember now, this is in the upper room the night before the cross. And Jesus just laid a bombshell on his disciples. He said, I'm going away. Where I'm going, you cannot follow me. Not yet. I'll come back for you. But he said, I'm not going to leave you alone like orphans. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go to the Father and I'm going to pray the Father. Verse 16, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be, what? In you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. I will come to you through the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ lives in us by the indwelling, or through the indwelling Holy Spirit. In John 15, verse 26, Jesus said, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And the reason I pull these two scriptures out is I wanted to show you how that the Spirit of Christ, uh, it's just another way of saying the Spirit who was sent by Christ, the Spirit whose whole ministry is to testify of Christ. That's the idea that Peter is uh, going after when he says that. But listen, Peter's telling us that when the Holy Spirit spoke to the Old Testament prophets, these prophecies were often a mystery to them in that they didn't fully understand what God was saying. This caused them to ask questions. <laughs> sometimes the Lord answered the question, sometimes he didn't. Um, but it caused these prophets to ask questions and to search the scriptures diligently to see if they could find somewhere else that might shed light on a particular prophecy God had given them. But this idea that the prophets themselves received revelation, truth from God that they themselves often didn't understand. Well, we saw that very clearly when we studied Daniel. Remember at the end of the book, uh, Daniel 12, verses 8 and 9? Now, Daniel has been given some incredible prophecies. And he said, although I heard, I did not understand. I got all these prophecies. Man, I didn't understand a lot of them. Then I said, my Lord, he's speaking to the angel now. What shall be the end of these things? And the angel basically said to him, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Not for you to know, Daniel. Just write it down. God is using you to put these words of his on paper, parchment. But the time is not now for you to understand these things. Now listen. We talk about prophets prophesying things that really troubled them that were a mystery to them. And remember now, a lot of what they were given by the Holy Spirit spoke of Messiah. And that's what Peter's keying in on, okay? 
One of the main things that troubled these prophets so much about the coming Messiah that they really didn't comprehend or maybe just flat out refused to accept was how Messiah would suffer and die and yet still reign in glory over a kingdom he would bring. Now, that was a big one because there were a lot of scriptures that talked about the Messiah suffering, uh, dying, uh, others about him coming and reigning in glory, and they were baffled. They were baffled. I I think one pastor put it well when he said, and I quote, uh, what you're experiencing, Peter says, is something by which the prophets were intrigued, interested in, but couldn't get a handle on. You see, the prophets wrote about things they just couldn't figure out. For they saw the Messiah's glory in Psalm 2. However, they also saw the Messiah's suffering as spoken of in Isaiah 53. They saw the triumph of the Mount of Olives, where the returning Messiah will stand. But they also saw the blood on Mount Calvary upon which Messiah died. How can it be? They must have wondered that he will be despised, rejected, and smitten, suffering yet also ruling and reigning. It doesn't make sense. They saw Mount Calvary, they saw Mount the Mount of Olives, but what they didn't see was the valley between the two, a valley of about 2,000 years. They didn't understand that they were writing of two comings. We understand that, right? But they didn't get it. In fact, they had developed a, uh, a theology, if you will, that there were coming two messiahs. Uh, one they called messiah ben joseph who would suffer and die and another they called messiah ben david the real messiah who would reign in glory that was the best way they could figure out what we understand though it was talking about the same messiah who would come once to suffer and die the second time to reign in glory that's what they didn't get and that's what this pastor is alluding to two comings that messiah would come as a suffering savior before returning as a conquering king Some today might say, I hear all the promises, but I don't see any glory. That's because there's a valley between them that might last a week, a month, a decade, or a lifetime. But God's plan is being unfolded nonetheless, for glory always follows suffering. Always. So 1 Peter 1 verse 12. To them, speaking of the Old Testament prophets, it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven things which angels desire to look into. Peter is saying, as God gave the prophets in the Old Testament these revelations, these prophets knew, I think most of them knew, uh, with many of these prophecies, Uh, that they were prophesying to future generations and not about things that would be fulfilled in their day. I think most of them figured that out, all right? We see in Numbers 24, verse 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel and, and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumult. So there the prophet is saying, look, God has given me a vision, we'll say, of the Messiah. But he's not coming soon. It's not near this this vision and fulfillment. It's way in the future. But they were understood. 
that some of this stuff went way beyond their years, okay? Hebrews eleven thirteen, These all died in faith, not having received the promise, but having seen them, listen, afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Well, what was way down human history for them is very near to us. In fact, pick up a morning paper or an evening paper, and you can't help but read a fulfilled prophecy. Jesus is coming very soon. I believe we are in a time just prior to his coming. Uh, and, of course, if you're like me, you're pre-trib, that you believe the rapture will happen before the tribulation period begins. Christ will come at his second coming at the end of the tribulation period. Well, the rapture is going to precede the, tri the uh, second coming by at least seven years. If we see the signs of the second coming getting that much nearer, well, we know the, the rapture is going to be even sooner, okay? The statement that Peter ends verse 12 with regarding the salvation of the lost is compelling, if not a little cryptic. Things which angels desire to look into. Now, I believe Peter has in mind here good angels, okay, not fallen angels. The Greek word for desire, things that angels desire to look into. The Greek word for desire describes the angels having a strong desire, a passionate desire to look into these things. Uh, the phrase translated look into is the same phrase that was used to describe how Peter looked into the empty tomb the morning of Jesus' resurrection. He looked into that tomb intently and he studied it carefully he was trying to figure out what had happened but he was really studying the scene okay that was what the greek word meant to to study and yet not comprehend now john different greek word when john looked in he saw and understood but peter at the at that time just looking in like that he he saw the empty tomb he saw what was in front of him but he couldn't figure out what had happened but Peter, the, the, the angels, Peter said, strongly desire to look into things regarding those who are saved. Okay, The context is those who have been redeemed, those who are waiting for the Lord's return, waiting for their inheritance, you know, and kept by the power of God through faith, that whole thing, right? And the Lord's coming, and when he comes, you won't have to worry about the struggles anymore, etc., etc. So that's the context. And angels are looking, desiring with all their heart. To understand these things, understand what things? The things regarding the salvation of the lost. Or what we would say in New Testament terms, they desire to look into what it means to be a member of the bride of Christ. Look, let me say this. As Peter looked into that empty tomb, gazing intently, trying to figure out what had happened, in the same way angels look at us, first of all, to understand God himself. They're studying us to better understand God. Now, we stumble over that because we think that because angels have access to God and stand in His presence that there is nothing they can learn about God. I mean, they're standing in His presence. They know everything about God, right? That's not true. That is not true. Oh, sure, they know more than we do on some subjects. I mean, they know more about his power, his glory, his holiness than we do. Those are obvious attributes, right? 
But listen to me, there are many other attributes of God's character that they couldn't have learned about without us. I don't get that. Okay? If God had never allowed man to fall, now God could have vaporized us on the spot. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, he could have wiped out the human race, two people, and maybe started again. That was never his intention. He knew from the beginning they would blow it. But because God did not wipe Adam and Eve out, but instead offered them grace, the plan of redemption was put in place, well, before Genesis 3. I mean, Jesus was a, a lamb slain from the foundation of the world, Revelation 13, 8 says. So the plan of God for redemption was already in place way before God even created Adam and Eve. But my point is that when man fell, and God did not move to destroy man, but put this plan of redemption in operation. See, this is where the angels learned about God's love, his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness, his long-suffering. These are attributes that angels wouldn't have learned about because, first of all, the angels who blew it in heaven, the fallen angels, they can't be saved. And the good angels don't need to be saved. So there was a whole dimension of God's character that they would have never known if we hadn't entered the picture, you know? And I hope they appreciate the way I've fallen because they've learned a lot about God from me. <laughs> but see, that's the part of God's being, his character, that could only have been demonstrated and learned about through his dealings with fallen sinners and their salvation. However, guys, I uh, believe... And maybe this is the greatest thing angels desire to look into or to figure out. I believe the greatest thing angels desire to look into and understand, listen, is how God himself can live inside those who are saved and a part of his church. Now think about that. The Bible says, well, let me read you a couple passages. You don't have to turn there. John 14, 17. John 14, 17. Jesus said, the spirit of truth, I'm going to go back to the Father, pray to the Father, he's going to send you another help of the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. And remember we said that Jesus said, I will come to you. So the idea that, you know, that, that Jesus, the Holy Spirit, they live inside of us. No angel who stands in the presence of God and sees his glory, and his power, and his magnificence, no angel, and they're pretty spectacular beings, aren't they? But no angel knows what it's like to have God living inside of them. That is incredible. Paul, in Colossians 1, verses 26 and 7, said, It's a mystery that was hidden from ages and from generations in the past, but now has been revealed to his saints... To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, listen, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Wow. And I personally believe that is the big one. Okay. I mean, I think angels are looking at us. Yeah, they're, they're learning about the mercy of God because every time we blow it, you know, and God doesn't wipe us out. Wow, God's merciful. God gives us salvation as a freak. Oh, God is so gracious, you know. Oh, look at how they keep fumbling and stumbling over their, you know, some fault they've got. And, and, and God's patient. God's very long-suffering. 
They learn a lot about God, his attributes, by, by watching him deal with us. But I think the biggest one is what they really desire to understand, look into, is how God, the creator of the universe, could live inside these fallen yet redeemed creatures. It's absolutely amazing to them. Well, verse 13, 1 Peter 1, 13. He said, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this is a common New Testament pattern. Paul was famous for this. He would spend the first part of an epistle laying out doctrine and all these wonderful truths that were ours in Christ. Then the last part of the epistle, he would lay out duty. Okay, now in light of all this, here's what your response should be. Peter's doing the same thing here, okay? He's just laid out this, this glorious doctrine about our relationship with Christ and what's coming and how we're being kept by God until the day of our full redemption. That whole thing incredible. Therefore, in the light of all these incredible, glorious, positional truths, here's what your response is to be now. Here is how you and I are to live on the earth while we're waiting for the Lord to come for his church is the idea. At that time, when the Lord does return, we are going to receive our inheritance. We're, as I said, joint heirs with Christ. And our salvation will be complete because we'll receive our glorified bodies. And so again, Peter says in the light of this, he said, um, as the redeemed, um, you are to live on the earth in such a way as to bring God glory while we wait for his appearing. When he says to us, gird up the loins of your minds, he's drawing from a, a practice that was very familiar to his readers. In those days, men would wear these long outer robes that came down to their ankles, basically, pulled tight to their bodies with a belt they wore around their waist. Now, you can imagine, if you got a robe hanging down to your ankles, okay, uh, it would really slow you down if you needed to run or if you needed to move Freely, it would greatly restrict your mobility, especially if you were a soldier. Uh, if you were a soldier and you were about ready to engage in hand-to-hand -hand combat, you're going into battle, you know there's going to be hand-to-hand -hand combat with other soldiers of the opposite uh, side, whatever. Uh, they didn't want anything hindering their ability to move. That could be deadly, right? So if they needed to run or move without restriction, they would gird up their loins is the way they put it. In other words, they would pull up their robe from the bottom, kind of folding it in half, tucking it into their belt, exposing their knees, which meant they now had unhindered mobility to run, to fight in hand-to-hand -hand combat, that kind of thing. Now, Peter is drawing on that analogy and saying, look, we need to apply that same idea to our minds. And the idea is that we need to gird up the loins of our minds in the sense that we free ourselves from worldly thoughts and cares that will hinder our ability to serve the Lord and even that will impede our spiritual growth. There's a lot of carnality, worldliness. The devil dangles all kinds of worldly things in front of a Christian to impede their growth, to keep them from serving the Lord, trying to get them to serve two masters or forsaking the Lord altogether to serve money or materialism. And some have done that. But Peter says, look, the Lord's coming back soon. Uh, we have a glorious eternity awaiting us, but right now we're working. 
We're serving the Lord, and we don't want to let anything, and this gets into the area of the mind, we don't want any thinking to encumber us, to, as Paul put it, to get us entangled in the cares of this life. We need to free ourselves from all of that thinking that we are unhindered in our service for the Lord. The command to be sober, I don't believe is meant to be taken literally in the sense that Peter's telling us not to get drunk with alcohol, although I'm sure you could apply it that way, obviously. Christians should not be getting drunk. But uh, I think this is also connected to the mind, okay? Uh, Gird up the loins of your mind, be sober. And I think it all goes together. I think it's connected to the idea is that it's a sense of being sober in the way we think, reason, and conduct our lives. I mean, alcohol has a way of obviously impeding our judgments, where we, we do and say things that we wouldn't normally do if we were sober. And Peter is saying, look, you could be drunk on the world. You could be drunk on materialism. You could be drunk on pleasures. Uh, you could be drunk on a lot of things that will, that will really affect the way you think about life, the way you reason, the way you make decisions, and so on. You, you don't want that to happen. Simply, Peter is describing a Christian who is in full control of their speech and conduct, in contrast to one who allows the flesh, their fallen nature, to govern their lives. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 5. I'll just give you a couple quick scriptures on these, along this line. 1 Thessalonians 5.8. You can read the whole context. He's contrasting children of darkness with children of light, children of God. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. That, that, that's the language of spiritual warfare. Again, let a soldier wouldn't go into battle drunk uh, would cost him his life. And Peter says, look, we're doing battle against the devil. Put on your armor every day and uh, get your mind cleared from the things of this world that you can focus, right? 1 Thessalonians 5, 6. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Sober-minded is the idea. All right, back to 1 Peter 1, again, verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, again, talking about the rapture, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, you know, not living like you used to live, okay? Not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, of course, we lived a certain way before we got saved. We were ignorant. It was all about drinking and pleasure and everything else. Peter says That's, that life is gone. Verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Now, in saying this, Peter no doubt had in mind the command that God gave his people under the Mosaic Covenant. You can read about that. Leviticus 19, verse 2. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. But look, God never changes, which means he is still holy. God told his people under the old covenant, Be holy, for I am holy, says the Lord. God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, which means he's still holy. And Peter kind of picks up on that and says, Well, we need to apply this now to those uh, in the new covenant. Because God is still holy, and he desires for his people to be holy holy in the new covenant in fact god instituted a feast one of the feasts of moses leviticus 23 
God instituted a feast that reinforces the importance of holiness now that we have been redeemed. It's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which comes directly after Passover. Now, if we could sum up Passover in one word, it would be the word redemption. Because it's the Feast of Redemption, celebrating how that God's people were in slavery in Egypt, and God redeemed them out of that slavery through the blood of the Lamb, the literal lambs that, they were, that were slaughtered and the blood placed on the doorposts and lintel of the houses. And when the angel of death saw the blood there, he passed over that house, Passover, talking about judgment passing over that house because the blood was applied. So Passover is the Feast of Redemption. It took place on the 14th of Nisan, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread started the very next day on the 15th and ran for seven consecutive days. To understand the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we need to first understand what leaven is. Leaven. Of course, leaven is dough that yeast has permeated through, resulting in fermentation and causing the dough to rise. Now, back in those days, the women, after they had... Um, well, what they, what they did was, whenever they had a lump of dough that had yeast introduced to it, it had become leavened now. It had, you know, fermented and all. It was ready to be used... Uh, to put in the oven to bake into bread, they would always break off a piece and put it in a towel and put it somewhere in the dark. And that would be known as a starter piece. And the next day when the women were taking the flour and, and mixing it with the water and all and getting it ready, they would take this piece of leaven, uh, this, this starter piece, and they would work it into the new lump of dough. And what the idea was is that because of the nature of leaven or yeast, it would eventually permeate through the entire new lump of dough until the whole thing was leavened. And of course, she would, then she would take a piece of that, save it for the next day, and bake that uh, into the day's bread. See, this made a very apt illustration of sin, and that's why leaven is always a type of sin or evil in the Bible, because it spreads like sin. It corrupts like sin. Fermentation is a form of digestion. We talk about how sin will eat a person's life away. It's the idea. It uh, spreads like sin, it corrupts like sin, and it puffs up like sin. Paul said a little leaven would permeate an entire lump of dough until the whole thing was leavened, and he likened it then to sin in a person's life or in a church, or we would even say in a nation. If sin is not dealt with in a person's life or a church, or, as again, in a nation, uh, if it's allowed to continue, it will just keep spreading and corrupting until everything or everyone has been affected by it. When God commanded his people to rid their houses of leaven in Exodus 12, verse 15, they understood what he was doing. They understood this principle. That if leaven spoke of sin, then that which was unleavened spoke of holiness and purity. And if you ever study how they did this, okay, actually it was the, the, the man's place to purge the house of leaven. He was the family leader, but he didn't do that, okay? The women went through the house before he got home from work or whatever. The women went through the house and gathered up all the cookies and Twinkies and, and, and got rid of them. But then she would always leave a little crumbs of, you know, leaven somewhere and where he could find it. And he'd take his little feather and a little dust pan and sweep up the little leaven crumbs into the dustpan, take it outside, declare the house now free of leaven. And they understood. Leaven was a type of sin. You were purging your house of leaven, which meant the house was now 
holy. It was pure, right? What is the significance of the Feast of Unleavened Bread to us as Christians? We've talked about this before. If Passover speaks of redemption, then the Feast of Unleavened Bread speaks of sanctification. Sanctification. The word sanctification literally means to be set apart. And the idea is to be set apart from the world to God because you now belong to him. But uh, it's also the Hebrew root that the word holy comes from. Remember, be holy for I am holy. We could say God put it be unleavened, okay, because I am pure and free of leaven or sin. And, and that's the imagery God was communicating, right? The word sanctification comes from the root that the word holy comes from. And again, guys, the idea was the children of Israel were enslaved down in Egypt, but through the blood of the Passover lamb, God brought them out of Egypt, brought them through the Red Sea, which was a type of water baptism. Of course, when they were delivered from Egypt, it was kind of a type of salvation. Through the Red Sea, a type of water baptism. And he brought them all the way to the base of Mount Sinai, and he proposed a covenant with them. And the first thing he said to them, after the children of Israel accepted the covenant, he said to them, Be holy, for I am holy, says the Lord. And the, and the idea was, he is saying to them, Look, how you lived your life when you were a slave down in Egypt is one thing. But I've redeemed you out of that system. You belong to me now, and now I demand that you live an unleavened life, a holy life. And the same is true with us, guys. Once a person has been redeemed by the blood of our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, a person that has been redeemed out of the world system of which Egypt is a type, God says to them, be holy now. Be holy as I am holy. And again, what God is saying is, look, how you lived your life when you were a slave of Satan, uh, in bondage to him in his kingdom, the world, Egypt is a type of the world, was one thing. Now that you belong to me, you are a member of my kingdom. I've delivered you or redeemed you out of that fallen system. And now I demand as my people that you live a new life. What kind of a life, Lord? A holy or an unleavened life. Now listen. For God to take the children of Israel physically out of Egypt, no big deal for the Lord. The ten plagues, he didn't need those ten plagues. He wanted to show his mighty power to the Egyptians and the whole world. God could have caused the people to disappear from Egypt and reappear anywhere he wanted. He didn't need to do the ten plagues. But he was showing his mighty power, right? And he was judging the gods of Egypt. All those plagues were directed at a god, one of the gods the Egyptians worshipped. But anyways, we, we looked at that. We studied Exodus. But for God to take his people, Israel, out of Egypt, that was easy. <laughs> Taking Egypt out of his people, that was much harder. The same is true with us. God saving us out of the world, well, that was no problem for him. Jesus did all the work. But taking the world out of us, that sometimes is a lifelong process. As someone has said, salvation is the miracle of a moment. Sanctification is the work of a lifetime. And something else that's very important to understand in what God was communicating through these two feasts. Passover, the 14th of Nisan, Feast of Unleavened Bread started directly after the, the 15th, ran for seven days. What God was communicating in that there was no gap of time between Passover or redemption and sanctification or holiness, what God was communicating was, look, 
once you've been redeemed, you are to immediately start living a holy life. And, and, I, and I say that because God is communicating it through these two feasts, but there's a lot of Christians, and I think the modern church is really guilty of this, it's really feeding into this mentality that, you know, you can come to Christ and all and be saved, but you know what? You don't really have to get serious right away. There's a lot of Christians who think they can still go to bed with their boyfriends and girlfriends. They can still lie. They can still do a lot of things. Because churches are not driving home the importance of, look, now that you're redeemed, you are commanded to live a new life. The life of the Spirit, a life of holiness. This idea that you can be saved and still live any way you want like you were living before you got saved, if that's your mentality and that's how you're living, guess what? You probably aren't saved. Because this is what God was communicating here. That there was no gap of time between Passover, redemption, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, holiness or sanctification. And I want you to see, and we'll close, this holiness... Yes, it's supposed to be immediate, but it's also supposed to be total. It's also supposed to be complete holiness. What is the number seven in the scriptures? A, a number of completeness. The fact that the Feast of Unleavened Bread ran for seven days, it spoke that God didn't want a little holiness and a lot of carnality. He wanted us to live a completely unleavened or holy life. Now, that is something the Holy Spirit has to give us the grace to do. But it starts with the mind. Do I want to be holy? God is saying, I'm holy. I love you. You're my children. I want you to live a holy life. Oh, but Lord, I'm weak. I know that. You draw close to me. And I'll keep pouring my spirit into you. And I'll give you the grace to, to be what I want you to be. I just want you to understand it's not okay to be saved and carnal. It's my desire that you be saved and sanctified. And that means a holy life. So guys, the most important thing we, can, we need to concern ourselves with as we wait for the coming of the Lord is again to live a holy life, a life of obedience to our God. And so Peter will build on that next time as we continue on. And he's got some pretty incredible things to say about this kind of life and how it's connected to the Word of God, etc. So we'll look at that God willing, starting next time. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your spirit who leads us into all truth. And Father, we just pray that you will continue to work within us. We desire, Lord, to be holy. We are living in a very unholy world. And a lot of the carnality and defilement, I'm afraid to say, Lord, has brushed up against us. And yet, Lord, because it's so dark and so wicked in the world we're living in, I think sometimes your people think a little defilement, a little uncleanness, a little leaven is not so bad. Lord, give us a mindset that says, Lord, we don't want to be defiled with anything of this world. We want to be completely unleavened for your glory. Father, we ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.